0: Hi everybody, I'm Cynthia. I'm an alcoholic. Okay. Is there a timer? Right on. Okay, you're the one that's oh I see. I don't know. I guess. So you guys tell me to stop. Because more is more. More is better. Anyway, that's just my feeling about most things. Um, so I have a sobriety date, February 9th. I'm sorry, 7th. <laughs> February 7th, 1999. I got my nines and sevens turned around. I was just telling Gladys. And I have a home group now, which used to be in LA where I first got sober, but now I moved to Huntington Beach two years ago. And so my home group is the Triangle Group in Huntington Beach, same as Emma's and Cindy, who came with me. And I'm just so grateful for those people. When I moved, you know, it was like, it was like starting AA all over again. It's like, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know which meetings were the meetings to go to, you know, and I, I had quite a bit of sobriety. So it was it was still kind of, it was a weird feeling. And it was right after COVID, you know, the lockdown. And I'm so grateful that I learned, you know, I learned to have sober feet in this program. I love this program so much, you know, it saved my life. and. It gave me a life. I feel like I didn't even have much of a life before this. But, you know, I learned here many, many things that apply to everyday life. But one of them is I learned how to show up. I learned how to, to do, to take contrary action, even if it's uncomfortable, you know, if that's what I need to do to survive. And for me, going to meetings is part of my survival. Uh, I don't take my sobriety for granted. Somebody was saying something about, oh, happy birthday or whatever, if you almost know It's like, I don't want to jinx it like that. I always say, whenever things I say, that never happened to me or this never happened to me, I always put a yet at the end of it because I truly have respect for this disease. It is a serious killer. And if one of my biggest fears in the world is not so much of dying, I've never been as much afraid of dying as I'm afraid of living in hell. You know, like that's kind of what it was like for me in my disease. And I know it could have gotten a lot worse. You know, I mean, I have these pictures of what it could be like i'll tell you what it was like in a second but what it could be like for me is just like alive barely you know addicted living on the street you know broken crazy psychotic you know and we see people out there like that all the time and i remember i see them i have a lot of compassion you know like that therefore for the grace of god goes me you know if it weren't for God intervening in my life and, and, and me being able to get sober because of this 12 steps in the program, I wouldn't probably be standing here talking to you. In fact, I can't believe I'm this old. <laughs> and neither can you, right now. I was talking to Genevieve and that, uh, you know, I'm born in 1961. So I mean I've been sober for almost 24 years now. And it's not my first sobriety. I'll tell you what happened. So I I grew up in a, a very small town in Michigan. I'm, from, I'm a country girl, you know? And I, I used to kind of blame my, my drinking and using on Michigan, because it's, I don't know if anybody here has ever been into rural Michigan. I grew up, I was born in Flint, which that's notorious enough in itself. But where I grew up was outside of Flint in a real small town called Holly. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to do. And, you know, everybody gets loaded. You know they smoke cigarettes and get high and drink and you know you can't go outside in the winter it's too cold here i'm like it it dips below 60 and i'm like parking you know (laughs) you know putting on my long johns and stuff because i cannot handle the cold anymore but back there it's like we used to have our idea was of a good time when i was a teenager we'd go to uh keggers and field parties you know not what we used to call them, but we go out into a field, basically, build a bonfire and drink beer, you know, and um, either that or, or the way that before I was old enough to uh, drive or before I was old enough to buy liquor, uh, we would go to this place, and we called them party stores. I don't know why, but they call them party stores back, not liquor stores. We go hang out in the parking lot of the party store and try to find this Locks party store in Fenton, try to find somebody who is like, dumb enough to go buy liquor for us, you know, and buy our MD 2020. Only the oh, best, yeah. only the best. It, it Takes you there, I'll tell you. It gets you there quick. So, like I said, I grew up in this small town. I mean, I had four, there were four kids. I'm the oldest of four. Um, I have parents, like most of us do. <laughs> I have parents. Um, My parents weren't like Ozzy and Harriet, you know, we weren't the Brady Bunch. We kind of, my, my dad uh, liked to dabble in drugs and he, they drank, you know, they had parties and stuff. Um, And so I remember the very first time I I drank, the the very first time was taking sips, of course, at my parents' parties and things, because we had this house out in the country and a lot of big, big family, everybody would come to our house all the time because we were fun. I guess we were fun people. And uh, taking sips of other of, of the adults' alcohol, you know, drinking what was left in the in the glass. But the time I remember getting like high, loaded, was going. We had a cabin in northern Michigan, and my cousins and stuff were all. They used to go to these bonfire parties on the beach, and I was like twelve. Uh, we were down there, and they showed me how to shotgun beer, and I never really liked the taste of beer. I, I didn't like, I like what it did, I didn't like the taste. And when I learned how to shotgun a beer, I'll never forget, it was like right past the taste buds, you know, directly into my stomach and directly to my head. And I got loaded really quick and I was like, this is awesome. You know, I remember that feeling I got the first time I got drunk and that was just like heaven. You know, I felt like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders because I was always a worried kid. I was always just really, in pictures I see, there's pictures of me when I'm like three or four, I'm like worried, like, you know, I've got, I'm worried about stuff. What's going to happen. I, I was born with anxiety. I think most alcoholics are, we have this, that restless, irritable discontent. That was me. You know, I'm the match with no spiritual program, with no God and no drugs and alcohol in my system. I am up to say the <laughs> least, you know, I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. So I was tense, I was not a, a very sociable kid. I was awkward and I didn't have any self-esteem, low self-esteem, all that stuff, you know? So I'm in, living out in this country place, you know, with my family who parties and my dad, you know, he did drugs and stuff, which I found out later on in, when I was about 14, but I didn't know until then. But, and I managed to, you know, even though we were, I was drinking a lot, and I was smoking, you know, I smoked weed. The first time I ever smoked weed, by the way, was my little brother. I have one younger sister, and two younger brothers, and we're all a year apart. So they're all younger than me, and they got me high. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was like 12, and they had stolen some weed from my dad's stash, and they got me high. And uh, so ever since then, I really liked that too. And, um, And so the whole family basically is indulging. And that just seemed like the normal thing to do. Not just my immediate family, the extended family. I have an extended family of a lot of alcoholics. Um, I remember uh, my uncle Robert was an alcoholic and he would come over to our house and he was always pretty much shit-based drunk, you know? And he always had a bottle in his pocket. His nose was really red. And he was always trying to kiss me with some slobbery, gross kisses. And I just remember, Oh, you know, I never wanted to be like that. I got every, cause people would talk after, Uncle Robert's not Robert, alcoholic." Just gotta, I'm like, why does he drink so much? You know? But, um, and that's what was my idea of an alcoholic like that. So as I'm getting older and I'm, you know, managing, I got through school, even though I was partying all the time and that, you know, I was, I still a decent, I was like, I was like a B minus student. You know, and I had the potential to be an A student, but you know, I just didn't really have the—I never had a whole lot of drive to, you know, ex- to succeed. And not until I got sober, you know, my thoughts were always preoccupied. You know, ever since I learned about drugs and alcohol, with when am I going to get the next drugs and alcohol? When am I going to get relief again? When am I going to get relief again? You know, that's like the obsession of the mind was always there. You know, what are we going to do to party? What? You know, before I went anywhere, there were, even at the tender age of like 14, 15, there was that planning. How are we gonna get our alcohol? How are we gonna get our drugs? What are we gonna do? You know, where are we gonna party? And uh, I managed to graduate from high school. I went to college for a couple of years. I didn't graduate. And um, while I was in college, uh, I, learned, I, started, I started doing drugs, you know, harder drugs, cocaine, was very popular in the late 70s when I was in you know it was actually the late 79s when I graduated from high school so we're, we're talking like 1980 cocaine was not yet as villainized as it is now it was still kind of like looked at as kind of a cool sexy drug you know and I, I say before it was physically addictive cocaine was like still people were going oh it's only it's just it's only you know mental it's not a physical thing you know or whatever they used to, I forgot how, it was not physically addicting. I remember when I was in college, I wrote a thesis, a paper on that subject. That was my subject matter, that cocaine was only psychologically addicting. It wasn't physically addicting. I got an A, you know, and I, <laughs> my, 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 you know the the, the instructor, the, the the professor, English professor, must have been a drug addict too. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea, but he gave me an. I guess I did a good job, you know, prove my point. And um and that was 1980. So you know, here I am. you are working on my drug habit and everything, and I ended up moving to California in 1982 into L.A. Um, from there, because I, I had this boyfriend that I met in college, and he was he was trying to be a drug dealer and he ended up getting some drugs fronted to him from my dad. And this is, I, I don't even go, I'm do not i not gonna go into the whole story about this but my dad had some drugs at our house that he needed to get rid of and he was in prison. So my boyfriend got the drugs fronted to him and then never got, never gave him the money. And my dad was very upset about that when he came home from prison. So that was why we came out here. That was what got me out here. I was like let's just go we won't tell anybody where we're going because my boyfriend was afraid he was going to kill him so that got me to California.
1: 1982 I
0: got out here and I was like kid in a candy store you know I was I felt like I found my place really I had never felt like I needed wanted to live in Michigan I felt like I was always like a you know a fish out of water there and um, I met a lot of really interesting people and most importantly, I met guys with a lot of drugs and I liked to do drugs. I was trying to go back to school, trying to go back to college at the time. because I always had an, I had great, I had great ambition at that point. I wanted, to, I wanted to finish school. I wanted to, I wanted to be a lawyer, believe it or not. And so I was going to school, trying, trying to graduate and I could never quite commit, you know, to that. And I was working, trying to earn a living My family didn't have a lot of money, couldn't really support me here. So I had to work and um, I ended up getting rid of that boyfriend and finding drug dealers that had the means to be able to support my cocaine habit. And um, by a series of circumstances, events that happened while I was here, this is 1983 at this point. 1983, cocaine's still not physically addicting. Rehab is very popular, it's becoming very popular everybody's insurance covers full-blown rehab at this point. And I ended up, I met some, I met a guy and it's like Emma was saying, it's like, there's a lot of guys that kind of like, you know, <laughs> dot my story, you know, who kind of get me there. But there was a guy I met, I met him at a bar of course, and he was uh, a bouncer in the bar. And he was a real alcoholic. Like he was one of these, one of these, like my uncle Robert, you know, like he drank three beers and he'd get shit faced blackout. Getting fights. And he was also a, a martial arts and a stunt man. He ended up knocking a guy out in a blackout, went to jail, had charges against him, and they sentenced him to AA. So here's my introduction to AA. I go into the rooms to support him. And I walked into this place called Studio 12 in the San Fernando Valley in North Hollywood to support him. I didn't was not, I, I had no desire at this point to stop drinking and using my idea and my feelings have have been throughout my life is that any bad things that happen to me are always someone else's fault it's because (laughs) I'm hanging with a bad crowd it's his fault I don't have the right job I don't have enough money if I only had the right parents I wouldn't be doing this it's always someone else's fault you know and I really didn't have any desire to get sober but I went to this meeting and I remember this guy coming up to me and just it was he was the a guy named Tom Kenny who ran that house, and he just he was a, a tough New York guy. And he goes, "Are you an alcoholic?" And I went, "I just was like, you know, are you talking to me?" Like I was really insulted. <laughs> he thought I was an alcoholic. You know, I, I I said, "No, I just smoke a little weed," and I you know snort a little coke now and then because I had stopped smoking it and I thought that was a great achievement you know at least I thought I had stopped smoking it at that point I was kind of just taking it easy just snorting it not smoking it and uh, he just goes keep coming back you know so I'm at this meeting to support my guy and I ended up eventually um, feeling like oh maybe I could do this and after a couple stops and starts I ended up getting some sobriety this is in like I said the 80s and that 1984 was actually my sobriety date. Then I get sober. I'm going to meetings. Uh, I take commitments, but uh, I never really got the whole sponsor and step thing, and you know the book that whole that whole thing. It's like um, I would read the book, and then I, I felt like I was reading another language. And I remember I would fall asleep or get bored and. The bottom line is I never really took that first step. I think that was it because in deep in my heart, I really didn't think I was an alcoholic. I could not believe I was an alcoholic. I really truly believed that all my problems were because of somebody else. You know, I was a, I was a victim, a perpetual victim. And um, I learned that later after I got sober the next, you know, this time and, and did my four step, but uh, I truly believe that. So I didn't really want to get sober and I didn't really ever take that first step and never really work the steps at all. I would get sponsors and, and I would call them and always it was to whine and complain about something that was going on. Somehow I wasn't getting my way. Somebody wasn't doing what I wanted. He wasn't treating me right or whatever. And then the sponsor would direct me towards, you know, the book and the steps and give me an assignment. And then I would just find another sponsor
1: because I would just quit
0: calling her. I don't want to do this stuff, you know? And I've had it happen to me so many times, I can't even tell you how many times, you know? it's like as soon as somebody's like, oh, will you be my sponsor? I'm like, sure. Okay, what do we, we start, you know, doing, we got to do some book work. So we just start doing some work. And as soon as we get like that assignment, it's like, no, I don't think so, (laughs) you know? Um, And I don't think, I don't think any of us would come in here like, okay, I've hit this bottom. It's many, I mean, some of us come in here like that, but a lot of people come in here and you have to be really, and a lot of pain and be really miserable to be willing to do the stuff that we have to do to stay here it's one thing to come here you know and dry out and take some time off go into the rehab you know and have the, the bus take you to the meetings and all that stuff but it's a quite another thing to stay sober and keep coming to these meetings and keep and be of service and and do the steps and end up having a spiritual awakening as a result of those and carry the message, which is what the ultimate goal of the whole thing is, you know? So I didn't have any desire to do that. Really. I didn't understand it. And I ended up up drinking after six years from that first sobriety. And, uh, I planned my relapse, you know, I don't know anybody else here. I was, it wasn't like it just like happened, you know, all of a sudden, what, what happened was I was thinking about it because that's, you know, when I'm thinking I'm in trouble. I'm starting thinking about it and I met another guy and I had almost, I had six years of sobriety at this point and I hadn't worked a step and didn't have a conscious contact and I'm starting slacking off my meetings. I'm not calling a sponsor and this is the perfect storm, you know, for relapse. And I meet this guy who's a full-blown alcoholic. And I told him i go to AA and he goes, oh no, he goes, you're not one of those losers. <laughs> he literally said, you're not one of those losers. And I went, looked, I remember just looking at him going, no, you're right, I'm not, they're losers, I'm not. Or, you know, and that's all I needed in my head was to think that, cause you know, I am perpetually unique and my case is, is different. You know, my case is different than yours. This is not gonna work for me, in fact, I am not the problem. That was what my head was telling i'm not the problem. they're the problem. You're, she's the problem. you know it's because of how I grew up. Don't you understand? you know um, So I started drinking with him, and then we ended up getting married after a couple of uh, knockdown out fights and blackout fights. Uh, he, he, he needed somebody to drink with him, and I was happy to oblige to him, so we did. And we, we didn't stay married for very long. So we probably would have killed each other. But so I left him Where I think it was in 1994 and 94 is when I, and I, and then once more, there I am, I'm, you know, I'm now drinking and using, I hadn't started doing the other stuff yet. And I was like, now I can really party. Now I can tie it on. And I ended up hooking up with some girls that I had met, you know, and, Getting, finding drugs once more, finding cocaine once more. And and then it became crystal meth because that was the 90s drug, you know. So there I am in the 90s, single and partying my ass off. And it it was kind of a quick, you know, once I started drinking, I remember my head would tell me a lot of the things it talks about in chapter three, you know, that how we keep trying to convince ourselves it's going to be different. So, I remember when I started drinking, I've been sober already for six years. So I'm I'm like, well, because I had a pretty good job. And I'm like, well, as long as I drink good wine and it's like after five, it'll be okay, you know. As long as I don't start doing that other stuff, it'll be okay. And what ended up happening was, you know, the first drink was like a couple glasses of wine, the next drink was a whole bottle. Then it's like I end up and and I never really thought I had a problem with alcohol. I, mean, I didn't think I was alcoholic. Then it's drinking every night, you know then it's drinking at lunch, then it's drinking during the day, you know? And it got, it started to get pretty regular until I found meth, and that really helped cure me of my drinking habit. I <laughs> mean, I thought, this is what I thought, right? And I was just great, you know? And I was able to lose weight and clean my house, you know, <laughs> when I had one, until I became almost a house clean, but um, yeah. So a lot of things happened to me during that time. So between 94 and 98, when I ended up here again, actually 99, 98 with a relapse, in 99. So I, I found a whole new group of people that I could blame for my demise. And I started hanging out with, I got a new boyfriend, of course, you know, and he drank even used even more than I did and started doing, you know, hanging out with people that were dabbling in other little like illegal things and. You know, I started dabbling in those things because it's really hard to show up to a regular job, you know, when you're like staying up for five days in a row and then, you know, taking it was stay up for five days in a row and then drinking tequila and taking Xanax to come down off the mess for a couple of days. You've done that, too. So, you know, I mean, it made sense to me, you know. I had friends, a few friends that would that would you know dabble in drugs, and I remember, and they were like, "How can you do that? Because the comedown's like so hard." I'm like, "That's just it. You just don't come down, you know." I was like, "You just stay high, you know." I mean, and so for me, that was it. It was a lifestyle, and it, you know, I really had no desire at this point. I'd been in AA, I'd been sober, I was having fun. It was the 90s, like I said. Uh, I'm starting to hang out with people in in the music business or, you know, musicians, things like that. And I am kind of a, I'm a wannabe musician, I guess, and and in a groupie, but so I'm hanging out with this kind of people and, um, a lot of drugs there and I had a good time. I had a lot of fun, but then it started to become not so fun. Like I said, that feeling, you know, that horrible, icky feeling like, you know, hollow, you know, no soulless you know, never really felt good unless I was just at that right place. You know, I don't know if anybody else here can relate to that, but I had to have the exact right combination of everything. And the stars had to align and everything had to, for me to feel good. Like I remember feeling, I was always chasing that, you know, and I remember I could get it for little instances here and there, but for the most part, I was either trying to get to it or trying to feel better after it. And, um, and it was just the more I did the less it worked you know then I was just doing it to kind of feel okay you know and there was a point in time too at the end I remember uh, the fun the fun part was over you know it was kind of like instead of going out I like to stay home and take my curtains shut you know and yeah <laughs> I mean it was I didn't like to go out it was real hard for me to get out the door uh, I got real paranoid. Um, things, like I said, started to happen. I started to do things that were illegal because I wasn't able to keep a regular job. And for a while, I had a company, you know, that I had started before I got, before I started drinking and using it again. And I drank and used that away. Um, that went to hell in a handbasket. And, um, <clears throat> and I tried a lot of different things. I tried bartending. I got fired from a bartending job. You know, I was selling drugs at the bar, you know, And, and I tried stripping, you know, as a dancer, and I even got fired from those jobs, I could not keep the job and it wasn't because I didn't look good naked, it was, it was, I could not, I couldn't show up anywhere, I couldn't show up, you know. um, So I couldn't earn a living and and I started doing illegal things I was doing tweaker crimes. You know, I guess they, I call them tweaker crimes, check fraud, credit card fraud, stuff like that, little things here and there that people would go, here, yeah, you can make a couple bucks doing this, you can make a couple bucks doing that. I ended up, uh, I was, I had these fake IDs and credit cards that didn't belong to me. And I had rented a car with one of those credit cards and ended up. i got in a fight with my boyfriend i have this car with me and all these fake ids and stuff like that and i i I flagged down the police because he had my stuff and we were fighting one of those drama things and i flagged down a cop in burbank and there were six cop cars in a row that i didn't see that you know and they had the mayor of burbank in the last car so they weren't really happy to deal with my bullshit drama and they ended up arresting me and arresting my boyfriend and So then we were both of us facing a whole bunch of felonies and we ended up bailing out and going and living in Michigan for a while, you know, to wait for the statute of limitations. And then I ended up finding drugs there too. And I ended up getting arrested again there and extradited back here to face all those charges that were. And so the good news is I only spent six months in in Twin Towers. That's the good news. (laughs) It's funny. I was kind of telling this story to somebody who didn't know this about me earlier today. It's like, that was the thing that actually saved my life. I don't know that I could have just made a decision to go. I tried going to a couple of meetings during, before I ended up in jail, I tried, I went to meetings and it was like, I would go high and I, I would walk away from there going, I want no part of this. These people are, this is a cult. I don't think these people are really sober. You know, I just had a really bad attitude about it. I didn't want what you had at that point. I didn't think it was going to work for me. That was the reality. Is I I just didn't want to come in here and fail. So um, getting arrested and ending up with that time, you know, just to have my brain clear in prison was the best thing. I was a prison. I was county jail, but it was the best thing that could have happened to me. And while I was there, I ended up um, in a program. It was called Reach Program, and uh, (laughs) instead of just being, you know, watching. Reruns of Gilligan's Island all day on TV, like they usually do, and, and waiting for the next meal call. I was actually in classes and things. And they had panels that came in. We had AA and NA panels that came in.
1: And that was kind of where
0: I started my next um, surrender and my journey, you know, being sober. Um, when I when I got done, I got I did my time. I ended up getting time served with one felony, four years suspended sentence, get out. They said, okay. Just stay clean, you know, stay out of trouble for four years and you'll be fine. And um, the night, the day I got out of jail, I drank that day, you know, um, I, I, I was just so uncomfortable, you know, I was so uncomfortable. I, I did, thank God, I checked into the sober living the next day. There was a lady running that Silver Living that had been in the same jail program that I was in, and they directed me to her and said, "Can you help this girl out?" So she let me in with no money. Um, I got a job. I think I was telemarketing. Anybody here ever did telemarketing? That was my first job. I did. I did. That lasted about two days, I think. But I I got. I started working, and I had to pay rent at the Silver Living. And so I started doing the, the deal. I was going to meetings, you know, and we had meetings inside of this silver this living. It was called Vesper House in North Hollywood. And uh, I got a sponsor and she was a really nice lady. You know, she would pick me up and take me to meetings and stuff, but she really wasn't very tough. And she didn't get me rolling on the steps and service and stuff. She was just really nice and i ended up drinking again february 6th so i got out of jail november 18th 1998 february 6th i go out on a pass from sober living and i'm hanging out with one of my old running buddies this girl is nikki that i used to hang out with and i got a bottle of tequila and i was going to drink it and i remember showing her like, i got some tequila let's drink she's like i'm not drinking with you i was like you know these are people i considered lower companions right <laughs> and she wouldn't drink with me she said you're crazy you just got out of jail, you're crazy. And um, I drank that bottle of tequila. And the next day, somehow I found, I ended up, I found this number. I, to this day, I'll be honest, I don't remember if I called her or she called me, but some lady I had met in a meeting and she had about 15 years sober, which I thought was forever. And she was super tough. This lady from New York, her name was Sandy. And she, we talked on the phone and I told her that I had drank and she just told me, she goes, you know what? I'll be your sponsor you're going to call me every day and you're going to do what I direct you to do. You're probably going to die, you know? And for some reason, I listened to her. I was at that place, you know, and that, I always think about that picture of Bill Wilson on the side of the bed or whoever it is that Bill Wilson's ministering to, you know, who's got a hangover. And he's like, he's in his cups. He's like suffering, feeling bad remorse. And that was me that day. And I was able to listen, you know, to that lady. And I started my journey of sobriety. I haven't had a drink since, you know, And uh, she took me through the steps. Um, We we went through the steps when I had about 60 days sober. I didn't tell the sober living that I had relapsed because they would have kicked me out. And then I would have gotten, I would have gone to prison. And that was my rationale for saying, I just didn't tell anybody that I relapsed. But my sponsor knew what was going on. And I think I told one other friend or something. So I stayed in that sober living a couple more months and I'm working with my sponsor. She had me going to meetings every day, calling her every day. And um, when I had 60 days, she took me to her house and took me through the book, 164 pages. She had me sit down next to her, and we went through that book, and I'm highlighting, highlighting. And we're reading it, highlighting. And every time we got to the place in the book where it was time to do that step, you know, we did the step. So she had me write out a first step, we did the second step. And when we did the third step prayer, she had me, you know, we got on our knees and we did the third step prayer at her house. And I remember just thinking, this is weird, you know? I mean, I, and I asked her, I go, cause I was really uncomfortable about prayer. I had no idea. I, I didn't have any feeling like I had any connection with a God. I thought there might be a God, but I thought you're not gonna wanna talk to me, you know? And I, I thought most people that were religious people were kind of crackpots and fanatics and stuff, you know? And I thought that I was really embarrassed about the idea of praying. So I got on my knees and I prayed and did the first prayer with this lady. And then I asked her because she was Jewish and and she, and I said, how do you feel about doing all these Christian prayers and know you're Jewish? And she just said, I don't know. It's like, she's tough. My sponsor does it this way and it works for her. So I just do what she does. And I'm like, okay, it's good enough for me. So I, I, I took that idea, you know, that, I don't have to figure out how this works. I don't have to know why, why it works. All I have to know is that it works, you know? Because I was, I was out of ideas. I, was, I had no more tricks left up my sleeve at that point. I am basically homeless in a sober living. I have no money, no job. My family's not able to help me. I was just on my own, you know? Um, so this lady got me through the steps and got me to the, to the immense portion of my steps and showed me how to do a 10-step taught me how to pray and got me into service, you know? And I highly recommend anybody here is here, do it quick, don't wait, don't, you know, do a step a year, a step a month or whatever, just do it. You know, they were meant to be done in order quickly. I don't think they were meant to be drawn out. (laughs) Um, I did have done other four steps since then, you know, that were probably a little more sane and so, you know, clear. I I remember just writing out this list because I had no idea. I I didn't think I had any resentments. You know, I got five minutes, geez. All right, so I'm sober (laughs) and I started, so I didn't think I had any resentments and this is where I figure out that I'm not a victim anymore, right? So in doing this four step, what I saw was that my selfishness, you know, my selfishness and self-centeredness, which is one of my biggest defects, is behind a lot of the things that I do out of fear. I take action out of fear based on my selfishness and self-centeredness to get what I want. And then I blame you when it goes wrong. Basically, that's what happens. So I got to see this where I did this and I got to see how these resentments were killing me, eating me up. And then she, again, showed me how to do a proper amends, which is not like Emma was saying, not to go say, I'm sorry, but how can I make it right? You know, Pay back the money you owe, and how can I make it right? Um, and to change my way of acting, change, how I did things, you know, changing everything about myself, basically. Um, I started doing H&I when I had about a year sober. I went right back into that jail where I was at, and I got a panel. I got cleared, and I got a panel in that same module where I was at Twin Towers. And I did that panel for 17 years, that same panel, you know. And I was telling a friend of mine today, you know, it's like it was – it was really eye-opening. You know, I would see some of the same, I was in there with some, you know, it's tragic, these characters, these girls, you know, Bunny and Boxer and, you know, Champagne and all these girls, they're coming, they're cycling through. I'm seeing them, you know, again and again, same girls in the prison. And I would keep going in there. I, I met a lot of really cool chicks. I sponsored a girl that, came out of there, you know, I told her, I, I used to give my number to girls, and you're not really supposed to do. I give my number to them, and I said, you get out, you have nowhere to go, and you want some help, call me, I'll help you, and this girl actually called me, this was in 2016, I think, and she had just been released, and she had nowhere to go, and I had to go down to Linwood, and pick her up, you know, I took, because I told her I would, I was like, she's calling me. It's like nine o'clock at night. She just got released. So I went and picked her up and she's still sober, which is an absolute miracle to me. Um, my life is amazing today. You know, I just want to tell you that I have had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Um, I continue as best I can, you know, in that 11 step to practice, you know, getting closer to God, basically in any way, I can't, I think that this program is so divinely inspired and I, it absolutely, it gets me emotional every time because, you know, I think that we're kind of God's chosen people. We're here to spread peace and love and harmony and help our fellow alcoholics and other people too. I try to be of service wherever I can. I think it's, it's a universal law, you know, and I am so grateful I learned how to do that. I learned a lot of things here. Like I said, I learned how to show up. I learned how to be a service. Um, today, my life is pretty amazing. I, I have my own business, you know? I don't have any warrants for my arrest. I have, you know, a car that's in my name with tags on it, you know, and credit cards that are in my name. I pay my taxes, you know, and that might sound like a big deal, to some people, but I think a lot of you here know what I'm talking about. You know, I don't have to look over my shoulder anymore, um, and I, I have a usefulness, you know, to the, to the the community. You know, I, I'm able to, to be of service to the community, A, by not being a drain on the community with my selfish behavior, but, um, you know, I'm able to help other people. And, uh, I feel like, like I said, I went, I went to church today and I, I never was, I mean, I, I've been a seeker, you know, for a long time, but I started going to church recently and it's, I, I literally burst into tears, you know, I was like, so filled with what God has done, you know, for me in my life. And I really truly hope that you're, when you, if you're here, you know, there's a lot of new people. I hope that you're miserable and unhappy and uncomfortable enough to do this work because it is all about doing this work and then taking what you learn and showing somebody else how to do it. Like Emma was saying, you know, that's the gift and and getting that peace that comes with it and having that conscious contact with God, you know, is what it's all about. So I want to thank Genevieve too for asking me to come and speak. Thank you so much.